This is The Guardian. Today, is Italy about to have its first far-right leader since Mussolini? With his government in turmoil, a couple of weeks ago, Italy's then-Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, attended a dinner with journalists, including The Guardian's Rome correspondent, Angela Giuffrida. Having met him in person that night, I would say that you know, he, he came across as a very humble person, also a very serious person, somebody very principled who sticks to his word. And despite knowing that his government was on, on the verge of collapse and facing huge, huge challenges, and with the energy crisis, potential another wave of COVID coming on, the war in, in Ukraine and the implications of that in Italy. So all these problems on his mind, but he still took time out to come and have dinner with a bunch of journalists. I, I think that, that showed a lot about his personality. Draghi was popular with the Italian public. Leaders across Europe saw him as serious and credible, a safe pair of hands who could steer Italy's recovery from COVID through to elections next year. But last week, he announced his coalition had collapsed in a manoeuvre by far-right parties to sink the government, bring forward elections, and try to snatch their best chance of coming to power since the Second World War. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the fall of Mario Draghi and the far-right forces seeking to replace him. Angela Jafrida, you're The Guardian's Rome correspondent, and I'd like you to start by telling me about what it's been like to cover Italian politics over the past few years. Well, covering Italian politics over the last few years, I would describe as being an absolute roller coaster. We've had three government collapses in three years. We've gone from having a far-right party in government together with a populist government. Then we had a centre-left government. And now we had the technical government led by Mario Draghi. And now we're facing a potentially very far-right government going forward. There were moments of harmony, i.e. when people felt that we needed to work together during the coronavirus pandemic, for example. But essentially, you know, what, what we've dealt with in politics here is five years of warring coalition partners who, for the most part, have been eyeing the next elections. And in the meantime, what's been happening out in the country? Well, we have high unemployment, wages that haven't grown for over 20 years, a lot of young people moving out of Italy to try and find work opportunities abroad, a declining birth rate, one of the factors being that that people don't feel financially equipped enough to start a family. We've had people abandoning small towns in search of work. So a country that's generally stagnant. After Greece, Italy's debt is the largest in the Eurozone in proportion to its output. The country's economy has stalled, despite margin growth in the first quarter of the year. Between April and June, it stagnated. The Vice Prime Minister... All right, so it's in the context of this country where it feels like the dynamism is gone, where a government is collapsing every year, that Mario Draghi emerges as someone who can bring some stability. CNBC can confirm that uh, former ECB chief Mario Draghi has been summoned by the president of Italy, Mattarella, uh, and is likely to be invited uh, to form a government as prime minister. 
Tell me, who is he to people who haven't heard of him before? And what was he perhaps best known for before becoming prime minister? Well, he was best known as being the former chief of the European Central Bank, widely credited with having saved the euro single currency. And he became famous for his phrase, whatever it takes. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. Very respected person in Italy and beyond. You speak with clarity. Your insights are based on solid analysis and evidence. You command attention. You create silence. You sometimes cause concern, and rightly so. It is what I call the Mario approach. The whole world knows how how badly Italy was hit by the coronavirus in the early months of the pandemic. Well, in Italy, nearly 800 people have died within the last 24 hours, bringing the total of deaths there to 4,825. And he was then brought in to to steer the country out of the pandemic, um, but also to revive its economy because Italy was also the recipient of the biggest share of the EU's post-pandemic recovery fund money. In Rome on Tuesday, von der Leyen applauded Italy's efforts as the country gets set to receive 191 billion euros in a mix of grants and loans from the fund, the largest slice among the bloc. The previous coalition, although they'd done a fairly decent job of of getting us through the early months of the pandemic, it was felt that Italy needed a stronger leader in order to tackle the economic challenges. And that's where Mario Draghi came in. Ringrazio il Presidente della Repubblica per la fiducia che mi ha voluto accordare, conferendomi l'incarico per la formazione del nuovo governo. And at the time, I think most people here and in in Brussels to breathe a sigh of relief because it felt that although here we have another technocrat, you know, this is a very competent person. And he he was credited with uh, restoring credibility to Italy on the world stage and and bringing about a a modicum of, of stability. At least that's how the situation was in the first few months of his leadership. So Mario Draghi isn't elected, he's actually appointed, and he manages to knit together this unwieldy coalition of parties on the left, populists like the Five Star Movement, the far-right League Party, and and centre-right ones like Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia. What did the Italian public make of this government, and what was Draghi actually able to achieve? You know, people were mostly happy when, when he was appointed because for the most part, he's he's a very respected person, very capable person, obviously, and Italy was finally in safe hands. People weren't overly happy at the beginning when the vaccination programme, for example, wasn't moving as fast as they'd hoped. Once that got going, once COVID seemed to be brought under control and, and people started getting vaccinated, you know, his popularity started to rise. Italy had a lot of good fortune last year with uh, the football team winning the Euros. And it's Italy who are the champions of Europe. Performing well um, during the Olympics. Three goals in the athletics becomes four. The Azzurri move into uncharted territory. Jed Maniskin winning at Eurovision.
And then we had Mario Draghi as prime minister. So all, all of that was going pretty well. Um, he was even crowned by The Economist as, as being you know, the most, I think it was, influential person of, of last year. So one thing that I'd like to understand here, Angela, is that You've told me that Mario Draghi was enjoying a kind of extended honeymoon. He was, he was popular with the Italian public. And it seems unlikely that someone who had relatively high approval ratings, who was bringing stability to the country after years of political chaos, would now be resigning from their job. How did that happen? Well, Mario Draghi was trying to push through reforms and he needed to push them through very quickly because his administration was coming to a natural end by early next year. And we needed these reforms, not only to get cash to people, to get through the winter, um, to tackle the the cost of living crisis, but also to access the next tranche of the European post-pandemic recovery fund money that was coming Italy's way. And in order to receive the next tranche, it needed to enact reforms that was coming up against obstacles from his coalition parties who seemed more interested in showing to their electorate that they've still got what it takes. So they were opposing some of the elements of these packages. For example, the Five Star Movement argued that the cost of living package was insufficient and it wouldn't be enough to to help poor people. And they didn't take part in the vote on that decree in order to create some noise that gave the message to to their electorate that, that, you know, we, we still exist. Although probably without expecting Draghi to resign. Interesting. So this begins as a kind of tantrum by the Five Star Movement, trying to get a bit of attention. They're not expecting that it's going to lead to the downfall of the government, but they miscalculated. Draghi doesn't give in to their demands. In fact, he threatens to resign and suddenly the government's on the ropes. Exactly. After a dramatic day in the Italian parliament, President Mattarella has declined Prime Minister Mario Draghi's offer of resignation following a split in the country's coalition government. And so what happened next? So the Five Star Movement essentially triggered a crisis that I don't think even they were expecting to end in the way it did. But then what happens is the the far-right league and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia come along and say, "Okay, Mr Draghi, we'll continue to be part of this government, but we don't want to govern anymore with the Five Star Movement. They have to go and we need a cabinet reshuffle. Mario Draghi had always said, I'm not forming a new government, we're we're carrying on with the same administration. And unless we can rebuild trust, then there is no government that I can lead. And hence, that's what triggered his ultimate resignation. Within the past hour or so, Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi has resigned after his government coalition splintered. His resignation has been accepted by the country's president, who will now decide the next step. Perché mi sto recando dal Presidente della Repubblica per comunicare le mie determinazioni. Grazie per, per questo, naturalmente. So Angela, this was initially a miscalculation by a member of Draghi's coalition, but it was seized on by a group of right-wing and far-right parties who saw an opportunity to sink Draghi, presumably because they think whatever comes next is better for them. Exactly. And, and, and so Mario Draghi had parties in his coalition, i.e. the League and the 
Berlusconi's Forza Italia, which together with Brothers of Italy, which stayed out of his coalition, are riding high in the polls. Uh, They tend to, to run together in elections. They were eyeing snap elections. That's what they wanted, because they know that in two months' time, when it comes to the vote, they have a very good chance of seizing power. And how big a moment is that, Mario Draghi resigning? Like, what was your reaction to it? There's been a mix of anger. The more left-leaning voters are angry because they feel that we've lost, you know, one of the most credible leaders Italy has ever had. Uh, this is La Stampa, one of the leading newspapers here, uh, with the w- symbol, sing- single word shame, talking about how uh, the, some of the coalition partners uh, in, in Mario Draghi's government brought it down. And this is the centre-left newspaper La, La Repubblica, Italy betrayed. That just gives you a sense of the shock that many here are feeling. What about the reaction across Europe? I mean, how was Mario Draghi seen in different European capitals? And how did they react to the fact that he was suddenly gone? Dismay, um, because he was seen as an instrumental partner in tackling the challenges of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. In the face of war, we defend human life and help those in need. Italy will stand up for Ukraine. But also the, the energy crisis, you know, steady pair of hands steering Italy and somebody who'd, who'd restored Italy's credibility on the world stage and someone they could work well together with. And you said that the far right were ultimately the ones who decided to sink Mario Draghi's government and bring on early elections this September. And one of the parties leading that charge was the Brothers of Italy. Tell me about them and how they and the far right benefit from Draghi's downfall. What do they benefit? I mean, they benefit from being able to go to early elections. They, you know, they're, they're scoring high in the polls as a coalition. Uh, the leader of that coalition is Brothers of Italy, which stayed out of Mario Draghi's government. And that party led under Giorgio Maloney. It emerged from a neo-fascist party. So it's a descendant from a party called the Italian Social Movement. So she has been steadily climbing in the polls. She went from having about 4% in the last general elections in 2018 to having about 23% now. Wow, that's a pretty big rise. That is, that is. So this is five years. And she runs for elections in coalition with the League and Forza Italia. And together, they're tipped to to get, you know, maybe almost 50% of the vote. And so who is Georgia Maloney? Tell me more about her and what makes her so popular. She has had a consistent, steady rise. People like her because she seems to have a set of very concrete views that never changes. People know exactly what we want, what we will say, uh, what we are facing and what we want to build. We don't change idea every day. We don't say every day a different thing. uh, and, and they can trust on us. She's someone that comes across as genuine. She's from working class background. She goes out and speaks to people. She's had this ability to, to connect with people from north to south. She's not seen as distant. She's seen as being close to their problems. And 
people seem to like her for that. And she's just consistently grown. She's been in the political game since the age of 15. She was a youth minister, also in Silvio Berlusconi's last government. So a familiar face. And she's managed to earn support from people who used to vote for the left and who feel that the, the left have made too many mistakes or they've had too many chances or they're too distant from the population. And she has managed to, to fill that void. And tell me about some of the things that she believes, the ways that she would try to change Italy. One of her priorities is security. You know, so that means keeping out illegal immigrants. But how she proposes to do that, we don't know yet. We do know that, that thousands of people are still arriving by boat at southern Italian ports. A lot of people have drowned making that really dangerous journey between North Africa and places like Sicily and Calabria. And nobody seems to be paying much attention to that at the moment. I was at one of her rallies a couple of months ago. She basically criticizes the way the situation has been managed, but at the same time, she doesn't suggest a solution. You know, her solution is basically keeping people out. And her way of doing that is to improve conditions for people in their home countries so that they don't even want to, to think about coming coming to Europe. I mean, that doesn't sound particularly inflammatory. Like when I think of a far-right leader talking about immigration, I sort of begin to cringe because I'm expecting them to say something racist. But she sounds like she's couching her views a little differently. Exactly. She's definitely toned her, her messaging down. She's remoulded the party to become more conservative, champion of patriotism as well. Very much still Italians first. But I do know she's also pretty hardline on social issues. She took part in a rally supporting Vox, the Spanish far right, in Marbella a few months ago. And she gave this speech in which she yelled... Sí a la familia natural. Yes to the natural family. No a los lobby LGBT. No to LGBT lobbies. She's often spoken out against same-sex marriage, same-sex couples raising children. Hers was one of the parties that, that opposed the bill that would have criminalised homophobia a few months ago. And equally with abortion, she's described abortion as a defeat. And we're already seeing in regions where the Brothers of Italy already leads that it's become even more virtually impossible for, for women to, to access a safe abortion. And it has always been difficult for, for women to access a safe abortion in Italy, despite it being legal over the last 40 years, due to the, the high number of, of doctors who, who object to, to carrying out the procedure. Um, but what we're seeing now are kind of more subtle ways of, of making that even, even more difficult. So, so those are her views. She says she's Christian. This essentially reflects her views. Angela, one of the features of far-right parties in Italy and across Europe has been their links to Putin's Russia, either in the form of actual contact with Russians or, in some cases, funding. Is there any sense of what the rise of the far-right in Italy might mean for the country's position on Ukraine? Well, Georgia Maloney, she was quite clever during Draghi's government because she actually held some constructive dialogue with Draghi. She supported Ukraine. She supported sending arms to Ukraine. She supported increasing military spending. A different story for the League. You know, the League was nurturing relations with Russia all along. Matteo Salvini 
I think, described Vladimir Putin as one of the best presidents there ever was. That was a few years ago. Wow. He's never outright attacked Russia for or criticized Russia for the war. It's hard to know where he stands, but then he is a politician who constantly changes his stance. So it's, it's difficult to know. Obviously, we know that Silvio Berlusconi was once very good friends with Vladimir Putin. You know, where that friendship stands today, I don't know. Coming up, is this the moment the far right returns to power in Italy? Angela, it feels like this has been a threat in Italy for many years. We've been warned that that far-right parties are on the edge of taking power, but it never quite happens. Is this the moment where it finally does? What's the likelihood of Maloney's party, or at least a coalition of far-right parties, actually coming to office? Unless the left gets its act together and forms a really strong opposition, and in order to be able to do that, they need to form a strong alliance because this is how the Italian political system is. At the moment, they have no clear partners. So unless they do that, or unless there's a big swell of opposition against this right-wing coalition getting in, then they have a very good chance of, of seizing power. What about the kind of technocrat like Mario Draghi emerging to again pull together a stable coalition from across the political spectrum? Or do you think it is Italy's fate now to be governed by far-right parties? There is an idea, Enrico Letta, who leads the Democratic Party, he has suggested carrying on with Mario Draghi's agenda. That led me to think that they might try and tap Draghi again to lead a coalition. It's a hope and you know, obviously would be a great thing for Italy, but it's unclear right now whether Draghi would want to get involved again. So it all, it's all to play for, really. And you know, there is what we might see as well is a backlash. You know, maybe the Italian electorate have seen, are so unhappy with this government collapse, they decide to make those responsible for it pay at the ballot box. But this is also Italy. And that, you know, generally people tend to reward those who have been irresponsible. So we, we, we just don't know yet. And for those of us who don't live in Italy, for people who are watching on, why do you think this really matters? Like, what's the case you would make for why what looks like just another chapter of political chaos in Italy is something more important, is something that they should actually be paying attention to? I think it does matter because Italy is chaotic, but it's the third largest economy in the EU, one of the biggest economies in the world. You know, th- this does feel different because we have some unprecedented issues to deal with. The climate, you know, you had the very small Green Party here talking about this issue, but you don't have people really talking about this issue. And at the moment, we're experiencing this, this long, intense heat wave and a drought. And nobody's talking about that. We had a glacier collapsing a few weeks ago. And it just feels like the problems are so huge. And this political instability, okay, we can say, yeah, we're used to it. It's just Italy. But it's coming at a really sensitive time, you know, a time not just Italy. Every country needs strong leadership. And we're not seeing that in too many countries of the world at the moment. You know, Italy is just one of them. Angela, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Angela Giuffrida, The Guardian's Rome correspondent. Thanks so much to her. You can follow her coverage of Italian politics at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ivor Manley. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian.